This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we take a deep look into the disappearances in Mexico connected to the drug war. Who's responsible? And what are the human rights implications? But first, Kurt Devine is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A gang of armed, masked men raped six Spanish tourists in Acapulco, one of Mexico's most famous beach resorts. The five attackers broke into a rented house, tied up six Spanish men, and held them at gunpoint, then sexually assaulted six Spanish women. One Mexican woman at the house was not harmed. The attorney general of the state of Guerrero says police have strong evidence to capture and prosecute the gang. Acapulco mayor Luis Walton addressed the crime. We are all working so that this sad event clears up. The weight of the law will fall on those responsible. And we want to also ask that you would collaborate with us. If you know anything, report the people responsible. Authorities believe the assailants do not belong to a drug gang. Commentators say the attack further stains the reputation of Acapulco, once seen as a glamorous Pacific getaway, but tarnished by recent crime and gang activity. The Chilean Navy is investigating a viral video that depicts its sailors chanting offensive phrases. The video shows about 40 cadets repeating the words of their instructor, Argentines I will kill, Bolivians I will shoot, Peruvians I'll behead. The head admiral of Chile's Navy said the video is unacceptable and the Ministry of Defense vowed to punish those responsible. Although no formal conflict exists between the nations, Chile has historically tense relations with its three neighbors. Argentina plans to take back the Falkland Islands from British authority within 20 years. Argentine Foreign Minister Hector Timmerman said his government will pursue legal action against British hydrocarbon companies occupying the territory. He accuses the British energy companies of stealing Argentina's natural resources, which include oil and gas deposits surrounding the islands. Britain and Argentina fought a 10-week war in 1982 for control of the Falkland Islands, located 300 miles off of Argentina's coast. Britain originally seized the islands in 1822. Members of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, demanded the Colombian government legalize some coca, poppy, and marijuana cultivation. Colombian officials continued to negotiate with the rebels in Cuba in an effort to reduce drug trafficking and stop the conflict between the groups that spans five decades. Paraguayan presidential candidate died in a helicopter crash this week. Lino Cesar Oviedo was returning from a political rally with one bodyguard when his pilot encountered bad weather in northern Paraguay. All three died at the scene of the crash. The 69-year-old candidate led Paraguay's third-largest opposition party, the National Union of Ethical Citizens. A French daredevil became the first person to climb Cuba's famous Habana Libre Hotel without ropes or a safety net. Hundreds of cheering bystanders watched Alain Robert scale the 413-foot hotel in about a half hour. Cuban authorities allowed 50-year-old Robert to complete the stunt, but dozens of police patrolled the hotel to keep order. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. 
this week, Kurt might be done with our news review, but he's prepared an in-depth story on the thousands of disappearances that are linked to the drug war in Mexico. High levels of illegal immigration, unchecked violence, and the rising power of drug cartels have caused what human rights activists call an epidemic of disappearances. Here's Kurt Devine with our report. Researchers estimate that more than 25,000 people have disappeared in Mexico since 2007. Known as Los Desaparecidos, the vast majority of these missing individuals remain undocumented today. Senior associate with the Washington Office on Latin America, Maureen Meyer, describes this phenomenon. So what we started to see was this trend that I think in the past year has certainly been reported on as being much more alarming than originally thought of more and more family members coming out and saying, I don't know what happened to my son. I don't know what happened to my daughter. My husband was traveling on the highway, never showed up where he was supposed to be. So this huge outpouring of family members, particularly in northern Mexico, saying, we have missing people. Meyer says many of the disappearances occur along migration trails where organized criminals prey upon vulnerable travelers, including both Mexicans and Central Americans trying to reach the U.S. border. Cartel members will often kidnap, extort, or murder migrants for profit. But in some cases, the criminals coerce migrants to join the ranks, forcing them to cut all ties with family and friends. Other cases simply involve family members leaving to visit distant relatives or going on vacation, then never returning. This woman, Maria Herrera, for example, who's lost four sons, they're all disappeared. She's left in that uncertainty of just not knowing. Although the number of disappearances has grown in the last six years, Meyer points out that Mexico has a long history of missing persons. More than 1,000 students disappeared in the 1960s and 70s when the government suppressed an uprising of left-wing activists. Some say that era had similarities to the dirty wars in Argentina and Chile, although not on the same scale. So it's not something that is new, and I think it's not something that's going to go away unless you actually really start investigating. Meyer said the government should create a national database of missing individuals and begin prosecuting those responsible in order to reduce the current disappearance rate. The recent spike in disappearances began when former Mexican president Felipe Calderón declared war against drug cartels in 2007. Battles between security forces and organized criminals caused the nation's homicide rate to nearly triple, and thousands of neutral Mexicans have been caught in the crossfire. Analysts say Calderón's public security policy largely failed because of internal corruption and lack of effective oversight, which allowed the rate of disappearances to spiral out of control. Senior researcher with Human Rights Watch, Nick Steinberg, says in conjunction with the drug war, many people have gone missing because of a direct link between security forces and criminal groups. A couple years ago, we started seeing more and more cases of people reported to have been picked up either by security forces or by organized crime groups uh, and, and never seen again. Steinberg interviewed dozens of people who described how police showed up to their homes in uniform, arrested one of their family members, then left, never to be seen again. In some cases, he heard confessions that security forces delivered the missing persons to criminal groups for bribes or favors. But in other cases, there's simply not enough evidence to know what happened. Steinberg describes one of these situations. When I was in Monterrey, I met this a family of a guy named Heu Abraham Sepulveda. Heu was a construction foreman. He was outside, and he was picked up by transit cops because he didn't have his registration on him. And he was handed over twice that night, first to judicial police, police who worked for the prosecutors, uh, and then to the Navy. And we have clear documentation of him having gone through the hands of all these different security forces 
and nobody's provided an answer as to what happened to him, although everyone says that he left in perfect shape. Steinberg says cases like this are highly alarming because authorities have not taken legal action even though they possess sufficient evidence to do so. Security reforms under newly elected president Enrique Peña Nieto could have a ripple effect on the rate of disappearances, however. Peña Nieto announced plans to create a 10,000-member military-trained police force to protect Mexican citizens from kidnapping, extortion, and gang-related violence. Pressure from NGOs and the families of missing citizens additionally led Peña Nieto to sign the General Victims Law in January. The law increases investigations and social safeguards for victims of human rights abuses, but activists say changes remain to be seen. So I think our, our attitude with the incoming government has been to say, even though these disappearances began under the president that preceded you, these are now your responsibility. The jury's still out, um, but, but we'll, we, we hope to see changes quickly. And if, if we don't, I think the, the government will have to be held accountable uh, for not doing its job, which is getting to the bottom of all these cases. Researcher at Mexico City's INSIDI, the Institute for Security and Democracy, Sonia Wolf, says the Mexican government needs to make a structural change to reduce the rate of disappearances. What families often find is that the authorities often are not um, not prepared um, to register a disappearance. Um, they try to um, to write down other terms, other definitions. I think that the challenge is for the for the authorities to take victims more seriously. Wolf recommends the government create a new forensics commission and compile a database of DNA samples from the missing persons. Authorities often locate bodies in city dumps or find them buried in unmarked graves. But without a centralized database, they lack the ability to match the DNA to missing persons. Wolf also says Mexican and Central American institutions need to collaborate more to investigate disappearance cases, especially those that involve migration trails. More should be done um, to raise awareness and to get the authorities to investigate so that the, the missing individuals can be found and some, some sense of um, closure and justice um, can be brought to the families. But this is, of course, um, a challenge um, for the families and for, for civil society to create more pressure so that the issue will be addressed. For now, thousands of parents, siblings, and children continue to wait and hope for family members to return until authorities start seriously investigating disappearances and prosecuting those involved, they will continue to wait. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Coming up, an expert explains what these conditions mean for human rights and international law in Mexico. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As we heard before the break, thousands of disappearances in Mexico are refocusing our attention on human rights concerns there. Robert Goldman of the Washington College of Law at American University spoke to us earlier this week about the international legal implications of how the drug war is being fought. Here are excerpts from our interview. If this is considered, that is the situation, and it is since 2006 when Calderon uh, 
uh, initiated the, uh, you know, to really take on the cartels. This is regarded as what is known as a non-international armed conflict. Then you're operating under a different set of rules. And that's President Felipe Calderon, the former president of Mexico. Exactly. Now, if this is what is known as non-international armed conflict within the meaning of, for instance, the Geneva Conventions of 1949, we have a slightly different ballgame. In what sense? In order for there to be a non-international armed conflict, there have to be identifiable parties with organization, and there has to be duration and intensity. And on all of those, on any scale, it it, it tips towards that, what has happened in Mexico. Uh, We have had, uh, I think, from a low estimate of 50 to a high of $100,000, excuse me, $100,000, Uh, casualties in this conflict. That is more than in Vietnam. It is more than what has occurred in Syria today. It's more than coalition forces, deaths and wounds, wounded, for instance, in Afghanistan or, or in Iraq. And those are all considered armed conflicts. If this is an armed conflict, then the legal regime that governs is not exclusively human rights law. That is, in the lethal use of force, people are directly targetable, Uh, And the other important thing is the other side is equally bound. In other words, the government not only must only direct tax against, for instance, uh, members of the cartel who are participating in hostilities, it must refrain from attacking civilians, it cannot attack people whom it thinks are providing them with logistical support or whatever, can arrest them and can try them. But importantly is the other side is bound. In violation of these rules, unlike human rights law, would constitute war crimes, meaning that these people could be on both sides, government as well as uh, on the part of the uh, drug cartels and people who are fighting for them, could have individual criminal responsibility, but potentially be subject to trial punishment before the International Criminal Court, or frankly, by any other state that exercises what we call universal jurisdiction. So the heads of cartels could be responsible for war not crimes. Just, not crimes. just the heads, not just the heads. I mean, if, if, if there's evidence, for instance, that a cartel member, uh, let's say who's out, who's just, you know, a foot soldier, and he's out is summarily executing civilians, because after all, most of the people who are dying are not police or members of the armed forces. They're civilians, like is frequently the case in in other non-international armed conflicts. But summary executions that would be undertaken, for instance, by the cartels of people that would, in those executions were related to their aims in fighting and so forth, those would be war crimes. Now, the people who ordered it would have liability, but as well as the actual physical perpetrator. So let me go back to the Mexican state and its responsibilities, because some people have felt in the peace movement in Mexico that the Mexican state has not been prosecuting this war, if it truly is considered a war in legal terms, um, with human rights in mind, and that the Calderon administration may be responsible for the deaths and disappearance of thousands. Well, there's no, look, I don't have the statistics, but the concern is there. And let's be clear, human rights law does not cease. The American Convention, which Mexico has ratified and is a party to, would continue to apply. Now, how the law of war, or what we call humanitarian law, and human rights law inter- interrelate is, is, is still a work in progress. But what is pretty much clear, for instance, the Inter-American Commission, which I was a member of, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, would treat, if it's an armed conflict situation, uh, a lawful killing under the law of war would be 
not a violation of the right to life. However, if either of the parties or the multiple parties go out and decide, you know, it's easier to disappear these people. We'll disappear them, we'll torture them, we'll get, you know, we'll try to get actionable intelligence, and then, you know, we'll just kill them. Well, that would be not only violations of the laws of war, but if perpetrated by state agents, that is, I mean, troops, police, whatever, people who are acting under color of authority of the state, those would be human rights violations. But human rights violations under human rights law does not, what we call, entail the criminal responsibility of the perpetrator at the international level. It's the responsibility of the state. So what the commission, for instance, in a complaint saying, you know, uh, the government uh, went out in, in a, you know, an operation that they, you know, uh, killed my, uh, my children and, and, you know, they weren't drug traffickers, etc. Well, if the commission... Uh, found and eventually an American court against the state, it would there would be a duty for the state to compensate and to investigate and prosecute the perpetrators. But at the international level, there would be no individual criminal responsibility. We're seeing levels of violence, uh, disappearances in particular in Mexico that, that certainly rival what we heard was happening in Chile and Argentina in the 80s, but yet we don't see the same international reaction to what's happening. Is it because we're dealing with cartels rather than a state, or is it also because it's unclear in this legal environment that you've just described that we, we don't exactly know where this fits? Well, your, your point is great, and the, and the conflict in Mexico is, is really pushing the envelope now because historically— when we talked about a non-state actor, for instance, that fights a state, let's, let, let's take the FARC in Colombia as a good example, or the FMLN in El Salvador. They had clear political agendas. And these were guerrilla groups. Right, but even whether and it the doesn't... FARC's still a Right, group. but it doesn't matter how they fight. The fact of the matter is they took up arms with a political agenda, generally with a manifesto. They became involved uh, in criminal activity and so forth, uh, in drugs in the case of the uh, FARC, but everybody's involved, with, unfortunately, uh, in drugs with Colombia in, in the conflict. Uh, but what we're seeing, not just in Mexico, but in Africa and in other places, is that you are seeing non-state actors that are getting involved in conflicts and what their motivation is. It's not so much political as it's economic. It's control of resources and so forth. In humanitarian law, the law of war, uh, for very valid reasons, has never conditioned its applicability on having a political agenda. And so if you start introducing the political agenda, then it starts getting a little bit political, which is something we don't want. What we want is in the law of war saying, look, as soon as bullets start flying and there's a level of intensity, Fellas, here's the law. Here are the rules. You're bound equally. We're going to look at you and hold you all responsible. So obviously, some people look at the the, the conflict in Mexico uh, through different lenses. That this is purely human rights uh, and the like. Uh, what I would say in terms of of why there is not as much attention. Uh, obviously, the situation you, you're dealing with a democratic state duly elected governments and so forth that are fighting uh, what are very unsympathetic people who are doing really dreadful things. I'm not saying that they're not elements of the state that also are not perpetrating violations of, 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 of whether it's human rights or humanitarian law. In Argentina, in Chile, and so forth, you had coolest regimes 
overthrowing democratic governments, which then made dirty wars against their own citizens. And the victims were quite sympathetic frequently, not all the time, but in large measure, these were people who were deemed to be, you know, ideologically not compatible with the government. So the thing in Mexico is it's, look, they're fighting these terrible cartels. These people want to try to destabilize and, you know, uh, the state, the state has a right to defend itself uh, and the like. And there's so many other conflicts in the world where you have, you know, uh, uh, other things, uh, you know, like in Afghanistan and so forth, that it does not get the attention that it deserves. So I'm I'm wondering I'm I'm glad that you brought up this issue of the non-state actor yeah. and and what we're really talking about there in many cases is transnational crime in Mexico particularly and whether the FARC has crossed over from being a political guerrilla group to being a transnational criminal group is certainly under some great debate these Well there's days. no question but no one would say because the FARC is trafficking in trucks that there's no armed conflict in Colombia or it just ceases to be a law enforcement action. And in Colombia, we are talking about resources and land and really politics in in a more traditional sense. Absolutely. Look, a lot of what happens, the rise of the paramilitary groups, the weakness of the Colombian state, the idea that the Colombian state couldn't protect them from the vacuna, you know, paying of the taxes and the kidnappings and this and that. Uh, the paramilitary started originally in Antioquia and then started expanding. And then they started having their own agenda, you know, and then they got in the drug trap. I mean, everybody's mixed up. But the Colombia, notwithstanding this criminal activity, the, the, you know, fr- uh, uh, they, everyone uh, who's an expert in the law of war will still say it's still an armed conflict. The difference is that was an armed conflict that began 60 years ago with clear-cut political motives. This is something which originally started as a pure law enforcement action for which the law enforcement, because of corruption, ineptitude, and so forth, they were outgunned. The other side seemed to have better training, better organization, and discipline. Eventually then started involving the armed forces in it. They're fighting with weapons of war. This is not a rhetorical flourish for people in Mexico that it is a war on drugs. It is a true war, and people are dying at an astounding rate. And not just dying, and of course that by itself is is the horrible part about this. And I, I think this goes to some of what you devote your life to, which is 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 trying to um, create a human rights frame and and a proper frame for wars to be conducted. It, some would argue that this is the dirtiest of wars in Mexico right now, well, with the disappearances, extrajudicial killings, and other problems that that are in great numbers. Look, there's a temptation also when you are facing, look what happened in our own country uh, under the Bush administration. We said, you know, we're in an asymmetrical war. We are facing a a vicious uh, non-state actors who've gotten together. They'll use WMD. The gloves are coming off. And this is what we hear in Mexico, too. Yeah, and right. Exactly. And that, you know, the, 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 the traditional rules don't apply. And therefore, we got to go to the dark side. So the fact of the matter is these people are a threat to the state. Uh, They are brutal, uh, uh, which is quite clear in terms of their actions. Uh, The state is held to human rights standards. There is no question about that. But one, as I said, is we have a slightly different regime when it comes to the use of lethal force. The fact is no state can permit such an enterprise to exist untouchable in conducting themselves. 
Colombia is an indication of a, of a state. The more that is investigated, we're seeing how drugs absolutely corrupted every aspect, every aspect. The investigations continue today of corruption within government at every single level. It's cancerous. It has to be cut out. You can't negotiate with these people. I'm, I'm afraid that they're just going to, uh, in effect, just give it all up. It's too lucrative. It's too lucrative. So you're going to have to confront it, and I think, unfortunately, you're going to have to defeat it. But the challenge is defeating it within the mark of respect for the, the fundamental rules that would apply. Thank you very much. Professor Robert Goldman of the Washington College of Law at American University joins us today on Latin Pulse. Delighted. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Although widely admired in the region, President Obama has so far ignored Latin America. His agenda includes immigration reform, true, but only because of growing Latino political clout. Latin America appears faded to sporadic attention. When an earthquake devastates Haiti, a political crisis undoes Honduras, or an economy collapses somewhere. But two of the region's 33 countries surely demand a more strategic approach. Mexico and Brazil produce nearly 65% of Latin America's output and within a generation may emerge as the world's fourth and fifth largest economies. With new president Peña Nieto committed to revamping Mexico's languishing energy sector, and introducing other far-reaching economic reforms, U.S.-Mexican relations present the greatest opportunity for the Obama administration and should be among its highest priorities. Bilateral trade exceeded $500 billion in 2012, and Mexico is on track to surpass Canada as the U.S.'s top commercial partner. Coupled with more sensible U.S. immigration laws, Mexico's reforms have the potential to accelerate growth and create thousands of new jobs in both nations. Boasting an economy twice the size of Mexico's, Brazil has achieved a prominent global profile and uncontested leadership in Latin America. U.S.-Brazil relations, however, are tepid and discordant. The Obama administration should be working more imaginatively to build more robust ties. A trade pact seems out of the question for now, but the U.S. might propose one or more high-powered technology exchanges, perhaps similar to the U.S.-India nuclear agreement, or a broader energy development program. Beyond the region's two giants, the U.S. should seek to make its 11 free trade agreements in Latin America more productive, perhaps by proposing a single trade area with all its hemispheric partners. The U.S., however, must avoid the appearance of forming a U.S. economic bloc that excludes Brazil and other Latin American countries. Public security should also be a priority on Obama's agenda. U.S. assistance is vital for many nations now racked by criminal violence, but Washington needs to adopt more flexible anti-drug policies. Two final items. 
the U.S. should play a more active role in the organization of American states, which is the only hemispheric institution with a mandate to defend human rights and democracy. Yes, the organization is deeply troubled, but partly because Washington has been AWOL. Despite political roadblocks, the Obama administration should rethink Cuba policy, which divides the U.S. from every other nation in the hemisphere and has brought no change at all to the island. Compared to the rest of the world, the Latin American agenda is low risk and high payoff. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to react to Latin American perspectives or any portion of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.